Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. It's late at night, and you're headed home from a bar. You're with your friends, and you're laughing as you stumble back home, talking about an overzealous bouncer, and doing your best impersonation. You can still hear the bass of music in the distance and people chatting as you all funnel out and away from the bar district. You resist the urge to stop for pizza on your long walk home. As hungry as you are, you're also tired and worn out from all the dancing and socializing. You'd rather get home than have this night drag on any longer. As fun as it was, you'd rather not have this night soured because of bad pizza or a drunken friend getting sick. Each step on the pavement feels like a far-off earthquake as you lazily let your body flop about more than you would if you were sober. Was the walk always this long? You don't remember the walk to the bar being so far, but it doesn't matter. You're with your friends and you've made some memories and had a blast dancing all night. There's a chill to the air and it's still warm out for this time of year. Well, maybe that's the liquor talking, but you're enjoying it all the same. Your friend suddenly stops the group and you stumble mid-step, half-falling into his dramatically outstretched arms, blocking your way. He says he has to go to the washroom, and you laugh at how theatrical he made the moment as he darts around a corner into an alleyway. The rest of you rest against a ledge on a corner store window as you wait. A couple minutes pass and the chatter dies down. You're all tired. You're far enough away from the bars now you can't hear the bass of the music or the loud patrons of the bar. You're in the city, but you're in a dodgier part where the void of the countryside kisses the city limits and you can hear frogs croaking, making you feel more isolated, more alone than you should. Like you're at the edge of a marsh, knee-deep and getting sucked in. You shake your head. Well, that was a dark thought, you think. Then you check the time and realize your friend relieving himself in the alley has been gone quite some time. It should have only been a minute or two. Patting your friends on the back, you ask them what's taking so long, and you all in unison, a little worried, turn the corner and look down the dark, empty alley. Where did they go? You're not sure if it's the drinking you've been doing or the exhaustion, but you panic. Where did they go? You search the alleyway behind trash cans and dumpsters. You split up and search the surrounding streets, but there's nothing. Hearing a car peel away in the distance, you instantly imagine your friend being abducted, taken never to be seen again. You start to jog the distance back to the bar, but there is no one on the streets. It's empty. You and your friends are alone. You all decide to go home. Maybe he is there. You're not sure if everyone is as worried as you are, but the rest of the walk is silent all the same. When you get home, you open the door and walk through the house. No one is home. You're not sure what to do. Do you call the police still drunk? Do you go out and search for him? 
Or do you wait until morning to see if they return? You're standing at the sink and you turn the faucet on, filling a glass of water. And as you look up and out the window into the backyard, you nearly choke on your water. Sleeping in the backyard, on the grass with their jacket pulled up over them like a blanket, is your friend. Safe and sound. Sound familiar? There always seems to be one friend who wanders, or someone who gets divided from the pack, whether that's at a concert, a bar, or perhaps simply a farmer's market. It's always alarming. You don't know whether your years of oversaturating yourself with true crime has twisted you into thinking the worst, or trained you to have keen survival instincts. Either way, losing someone in a crowd can make your heart jump up into your mouth in an instant. Most of the time, almost always in fact, we are reunited finding them in some unexpected place, or the most obvious of places, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes when someone is separated from the pack, divided from the security of numbers, they are never seen again. And in March of 1989, this is exactly what happened to Mark Kilroy. Spring break was on the horizon, and Mark Kilroy and his three high school friends all away at different colleges now. Bradley Moore, Bill Huddleston, and Brent had been planning this spring break for months. On March 10, 1989, Bradley Moore finished his exams at Texas A&M University and jumped into his car ready to let loose and drove to pick up Mark Kilroy. They then all embarked on their nine-hour road trip to South Padre Island. They arrived just before midnight on the 10th and signed into the Sheraton Hotel and took their bags up to their room. I can imagine it was like most road trips. By the time they reached the hotel, they would have been tired and anxious to get the fun started. I imagine that they flopped on their beds and started kicking the sheets tucked too tight under the mattress. Maybe they checked the fridge in the room or looked for a minibar. A couple of them would have dozed off, and the other two might have explored the hotel and found where the pool was. It was completely normal and completely average. But within a few days, their entire worlds would be turned upside down, shaken till their brains bled and left gasping for air, wondering what had gone wrong. Mark and his trio of friends had arrived on South Padre Island early, they had been eager to get a couple extra days together before the mayhem of spring break started. They swam in the pool, ate their continental breakfast, and lounged around the private beach the Sheraton owned on the tiny tropical island. It was on March 12th that Mark, Bradley, Bill, and Brent drove to Brownsville, where they parked their car and walked across the Gateway International Bridge that spanned the width of the Rio Grande River, and cross the border into Mexico to party and get spring break started in a town called Matamoros. Matamoros wasn't the nicest town. It was a dodgy boomer town. It wasn't particularly clean, and there were stray dogs picking through garbage and alleys that made the hair on the back of your neck stand straight up to walk down. But there was a wide-open pavilion called Cale Alvero Obregón, Filled with bars, clubs, and restaurants where Mark and everyone else wanted to party. 15,000 spring breakers traveled to the area every year, 
and Calais Alvaro Obregon was notoriously fun and notoriously promiscuous. The night went by without any issue. There was plenty of drinking and women and dancing. And when the night was over, Mark, Brad, Bill, and Brent walked back across the bridge, across the Rio Grande, and back to their car in Brownsville to head back to South Padre Island. The next day, the group decided that they would do much the same, having fun the previous night, and started the evening off by going to a party where some of Mark's frat brothers were drinking. After visiting briefly, the motley crew of high school friends headed once more back into Matamoros. That evening, Mark and his friends had the classic spring break experience. They bar hopped, they laughed, they drank, they met some nice young ladies, and at the end of the night ended up at the Hard Rock Cafe, where Mark was seen flirting with a beautiful young woman, a college student who had participated in that evening's main event, the tan line competition. As last call rang through the bars, and the uniform filing out of students and gathering crowds formed, like a herd of sheep being corralled by the streets of Matamoros, shuffling their way back to Texas. Mark and his friends decided although they could keep the night going and get into more trouble to go wild until the sun came up, that the night was over and it was instead time to go home. The group watched one another being the young, responsible young men that they were, and tried to stick as closely to one another in the crowds. But eventually they were forced to split into pairs, Brent and Brad, and Mark and Bill. That was fine though, they all knew where the car was parked, none of them were too drunk, and at least the pairs could watch one another, assuring everyone got back to Brownsville safe and sound amidst the ruckus of sweaty young college students bouncing off one another still excitable from the fun they'd been having all night. As Mark and Bill were coming up to the Gateway International Bridge that crossed the Rio Grande River back into Texas, Bill had to go to the washroom and jogged not far from Mark to a tree in a small park, about only 200 yards from the bridge. And as he jogged a short distance away from Mark Kilroy, Bill Huddleston noticed a Mexican man motioning in their direction and simply thought Mark must have known him from earlier that evening. Bill finished, zipped up his pants, and turned around to signal to Mark that it was time to continue the journey. But Mark Kilroy was gone, plucked from the park, leaving Bill alone and confused. Bill decided uncomfortably that perhaps Mark had gone ahead, not willing to wait for Bill to finish. It seemed a bit out of character, but they had been drinking, so maybe he wasn't in quite the right mindset. But when Bill met up with Brad and Brent, Mark wasn't with them. He was a fairly street-smart young man, a stick-with-the-group kind of guy. Surely he would have been back to the car by now. He wouldn't have easily forgotten where it was parked either. An uneasy tension rose in the pits of their stomachs, and they collectively decided that they needed to double back to try and find their friend, Mark Kilroy. The three went searching for Mark, keeping their eyes open as they made their journey back to Matamoros. Their search lasted until 4.30 a.m. They questioned bar owners, Bouncers, straggling college students, they looked in alleys next to trash cans in washrooms. But there was no mark. 
no clue to where he had gone and uneasy, but not ready to believe something bad might have happened. And thinking it was extremely unlikely, they thought perhaps the only logical conclusion was that he had gotten offered a ride back to South Padre Island to the Sheraton Hotel where they were staying. The group got back in the car and drove back to the hotel, half expecting, half hoping, beyond hope that Mark was safe and in bed. But when they got back, Mark was not there. He had not made it back to the hotel. The trio of friends, now definitely worried and definitely silently panicking, still unsure if they were being paranoid or reasonable, decided to wait till morning to contact the police. If Mark was gone when they woke up, then something was definitely wrong. The next morning, when they awoke feeling a little worse for wear after a long night, Mark still wasn't there. Now, tension and unease turned to worry and panic. The trio headed to the local Matamoros police, who didn't really seem to care about a missing spring breaker. Of course, he was probably with a woman or hung over in a park somewhere. They'd seen it all before. But Brad, Brent, and Bill knew better. They knew that wasn't Mark Kilroy. He simply would not do that and they rushed to the Brownsville police who they thought might care more about a missing college student, where they filed a missing persons report. Mark's parents were notified that their son was missing, and over the next few weeks, the Kilroys embarked on a furious campaign to locate their son. 20,000 leaflets were distributed, promising a $15,000 reward. They managed to get the case featured on America's Most Wanted and searched through an endless slew of useless phone calls and letters with promising tips. Helen and Mark Sr., Mark Kilroy's parents, were preparing to fly home, unsure whether their presence was helping or hurting the search for their son at this point. Three weeks had passed since the night Mark Kilroy vanished from Matamoros. It was early April now. The college students had all gone home to return to their studies, all except Mark Kilroy still missing, when a young 22-year-old resident of Matamoros, Elio Hernandez Rivera, proved to be the key to finding out what had happened that night three weeks ago. In the largest anti-drug operation ever undertaken by both American and Mexican authorities, including 1,200 agents, a dozen helicopters, and 30 airplanes, Elio Hernandez Rivera was arrested. Under questioning, Elio Hernandez named several drug dealers and revealed that his family owned a small ranch in the hinterlands, a parched, remote area 30 kilometers west of Matamoros. On April 11th, Elio was placed in handcuffs, shoved into the back of a police car, and taken to the Santa Elena Ranch. The area was known to police, and it wasn't surprising when police found 75 pounds of marijuana on the property. But what happened next, my creepy friend, police did not expect. They were surprised, and they were horrified. The Mexican police had made a routine of showing a photograph of Mark Kilroy, and out of habit showed the photograph to the ranch caretaker, asking if he had seen the missing man. The caretaker nodded his head. Yes, he had. The caretaker led the police to a corral, with a tin shack on a small hill, and as the police walked towards the shack, the air grew sour. 
Their noses wrinkled, and the stench of rotting flesh became more and more overwhelming and engulfed them. Turning their stomachs, flies swarmed and darted, humming their death song through the air. Buried in shallow graves were the remains of twelve men, including the mutilated body of Mark Kilroy. Mark was born March 5, 1968, in Chicago, to Mark and Helen Kilroy. Mark Sr. was a chemical engineer and Helen was a volunteer paramedic. And after he was born, the family relocated to Santa Fe, Texas. Mark wasn't a wayward son of neglectful parents. He was anyone you could have known. He was the good son. The one that would make his parents proud and other parents envious. Mark was involved in student council, boy scouts, basketball, golf club, and an honor student. He had made being good look effortless. My creepy friend, if this could happen to him... Someone who would not go looking for trouble. Someone who was wise enough not to be taken advantage of easily. Smart and athletic. Well, then it could happen to any of us. Some of the victims in those shallow graves, barely given the respect of a few pounds of dirt, had been slashed with knives. Some of them were shot. One was burned and another hung. Most of them were savagely mutilated, an act displaying a complete lack of humanity in the one carrying out the axe. Their hearts were ripped savagely from their bodies, their ears cut off, their eyes plucked from the sockets, and their testicles were removed, sliced off the body. Eventually, police found three more bodies, bringing the total count to 15. That's 15 innocent people, unsuspecting of the shadows that cloud sickened hearts. Sickened hearts that lay in unsuspecting individuals that could look like you or I hidden in a crowd. Hidden amongst normalcy. Inside the windowless tin shack that stood atop the arid rise, on its blood-soaked floor, amid a collection of lit candles, there stood an iron kettle like a witch's cauldron filled with iron and wooden spikes, a roasted turtle and charred human brain. There were urns decorating the room like a pharaoh's tomb. Some contained human hair, others congealed animal parts, and others still contained thick, clotted, and congealed blood. There were cigars and coconut shells littered across the room. There was an iron bed frame, electrician's tape, and a blood-caked machete and hammer. Police even found a large oil drum that seemed to have been used to boil some of the victims. It was a slaughterhouse for humans. Police began rounding up anyone related to the horror ranch, and it quickly became apparent that police had stumbled upon a cult. According to the testimony given by Elio Hernandez, the drug smugger whose initial arrest led to the discovery, and four other cult members, the victims, including Mark Kilroy, had been ritually slain in the belief that human sacrifice would grant them invincibility and protect their drug smuggling operation from the police. When police arrested some of the cultists, it was rumored that two of them were wearing necklaces made from the vertebrae of their victims. But who had been the one to kill Mark Kilroy? The answer was simply stated as El Padrino, the Godfather. 
a warrant was issued for the arrest of Aldolfo de Jesus Constanzo, the 26-year-old mastermind and religious leader of the cult, and Sara Aldrete, a 24-year-old student at Texas Southmost College in Brownsville. She was known as the witch. When examined, it was found that the contents of the human slaughter shack were all consistent with the practice of Santeria, an underground Caribbean religion, a religion in which African gods are identified with Roman Catholic saints, and that of a darker religion still, Palomeombe, a more sinister mix of voodoo and African gods. The drug smuggling cult run by Constanzo was dedicated to the spirit of Ogun, the patron god of criminals. Several times during interrogation, the 1987 horror film, The Believers, was mentioned, a film about a cult in New York City that conducted human sacrifices in order to attain money and power. It seems Sarah Aldrete had organized screenings of the movie, making the members of their cult on the ranch watch it endlessly. But this isn't the story of Sarah Aldrete or Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. I don't want to tell their story. I don't want to give them the attention they craved, the power to be spoken of more than they need to be to tell Mark's story. This is the story of Mark Kilroy. This is about the cautionary tale that no one is invincible, no matter how good or how smart. This is about knowing the tragedy that became of him, to remind you and I that we all have a social contract to look out for one another, to remain protective of one another, and to keep each other safe. Mark Kilroy was taken a mere 200 yards from the border. Adolfo Constanzo gathered his followers on the ranch and preached to them, demanded an Anglo student be sacrificed. It was shortly after that that Mark Kilroy was kidnapped. Several of the cult members testified that Mark had almost escaped. He had fought back, but was wrestled back into the car and driven out to the ranch. When he arrived at the home of the cult, he was bound and gagged with heavy tape. Mark Kilroy was then imprisoned in the shack and told nothing bad would happen to him. They then served him his final meal. Eggs, bread, and water. The clock ticked by, an hour and then two, and then twelve. Twelve long hours after he had been kidnapped, Mark Kilroy was led out of the slaughter shack, out into a clearing, and Adolfo Constanzo with a machete came up behind him, and with one swing chopped Mark Kilroy at the base of the neck with that machete. When police found Mark's body, it was plain to see that Adolfo had then severed his legs at the knee, and Mark Kilroy's brain and spine had also been removed. What became of Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo and Sarah Aldrete? Well, I don't think it really matters much, but I know you're a curious creep. That you won't be very happy if I don't tell you. Some of you might even leave a bad review or join our Facebook group just to berate me, so I'll go ahead and tell you. Adolfo Constanzo fled to Mexico City, where police tracked him into an apartment complex. They surrounded him, and he was about to fall into the hands of the police when he ordered one of the cult members to kill him with a machine gun. 
Sarah Aldretti was arrested at the scene and with several other cult members were found guilty of a slew of charges, including drug running and murder. Sarah, known as the witch, remains in prison and, if ever released, awaits the impending charges of the murder of Mark Kilroy by American authorities. 72 words. That's all the Godfather and the witch deserve. Barely enough to tell you creeps what happened. Like I said, this whole tale was always about Mark Kilroy and his friends and family who will always mourn his death and miss him. So creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, in production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door.